to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the application of Mott and the Environment Agency. And the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 10. We're starting our investigation into this case in a slightly unusual way, but do bear with me because I promise that it's relevant. So the Salmon Run is an annual event where salmon return from the ocean to the river in which they were born, and after swimming upriver, covering colossal distances, they spawn their young and then die. At this time the salmon go against the odds facing a range of obstacles both natural and man-made. The natural obstacles include rapids and predators such as otters, but for the purposes of this case we will be focusing on a key man-made obstacle fishing. To be more precise, we are talking about putcher fishing in the estuary of the River Severn. This involves baskets being fixed in a wooden frame to catch the fish, and these are then stacked in ranks that are four or five rows high and set against the tide. The respondent in this case is Mr Mott, who has a leasehold interest in such a putcher rank and has made a living in this way since 1979. He has in recent years come up against the Environment Agency, the other party in this case, who have a contradicting ecological approach and do their utmost to preserve salmon stocks in the area. This is especially sensitive because for a long time now this stock has officially been considered at risk and the area has been designated a special area of conservation within the Severn Estuary European Marine Site, a status derived from EU law. With that in mind, the Environment Agency entered into negotiations with Mr Mott to try and end his lease and shut down the fishery, but an agreement could never be reached and the discussions eventually failed in 2012. The Environment Agency reacted by instead imposing severe limits on the number of fish Mr Mott could catch when it came to awarding his annual licence under the Salmon Freshwater Fisheries Act 1975. In 2012 he was only allowed to catch 30 salmon, and if you think that's bad, in 2013 that figure went down to 23, and 24 salmon in 2014. On top of all this, while Mr Mott had previously been paid compensation not to run the fishery at certain times of the year, this was stopped after the negotiations failed in 2012. In view of such draconian conditions, and the way that they had made the fishery so economically unviable, A judicial review case was brought against the Environment Agency on two key grounds. Firstly, the conditions imposed were irrational, and secondly, they represented a breach of Mott's right to property under Article 1 of Protocol 1 of the European Convention on Human Rights. When the case got to the Court of Appeal, they held that while the decision by the Environment Agency to impose the conditions was not enough to constitute irrationality, The fact that there was no compensation associated with the conditions meant that there had been a breach of the right to property. The agency appealed to the Supreme Court and so the justices were given the opportunity to closely examine what the right to property actually constitutes in the eyes of the law. Fortunately, there are a number of existing cases that helped to set a precedent and Lord Carnworth, in his leading judgment, began with the 2005 decision in the Crown on the application of Trailer and Marina Levin Limited and Secretary of State for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, where the former President of the Supreme Court 
Lord Justice Newberger, as he was then, held that a balance has to be struck between the specific property rights of the individual and the more general interests of society at large. An approach that operates on the same principles can also be found in the 2007 European Court of Human Rights case, Hutton Chapska and Poland, where the question asked was whether the person whose property rights had been interfered with had been forced to suffer a disproportionate and excessive burden. After establishing the relevant case law, the Supreme Court moved on to the questions raised in this particular appeal. In the first instance, did the conditions imposed by the Environment Agency constitute control of the property or outright expropriation in all but name? If we're talking about control, then the next question is whether compensation had to be paid in order to strike a fair balance for the purposes of the law. If instead we're talking about de facto expropriation, then the question becomes whether there are any exceptional circumstances that justify the lack of compensation. The problem is that the Supreme Court did not think that this original question about control and expropriation was the correct one to ask, or at the very least felt that it was not central to the point at issue in this case. It was certainly a factor that the conditions imposed by the Environment Agency were perilously close to amounting to a complete deprivation of the enjoyment of the property. But by returning to the approach in Hutton Chapska, the court has to examine the overall impact on Mr Mott and decide if it was excessive and disproportionate. Given that Mr Mott had depended on the fishery for his livelihood since the late 70s, the effect could certainly be described as severe, especially when combined with the fact that there was no compensation available and the leasehold interest had by now lost most of its commercial value because of those conditions. The court did acknowledge the importance of ecological concerns as a factor in favour of the Environment Agency, but on balance the conditions were so harsh as to represent a breach of Article 1 of Protocol 1 of the European Convention on Human Rights. We can now go on to discuss the wider implications of this decision, but before we do so, I think it's important to emphasise, as the Supreme Court did, that this is an extreme example. In general, the state and state bodies do have a wide degree of discretion when it comes to restricting property rights in order to protect the environment. Furthermore, there is no automatic right to compensation. In the end, the law simply asks for a fair balance to be struck between individual property rights and environmental concerns. The question is, can a balance really be considered to be fair when the court has made clear that the state has such wide discretion when it comes to interfering with personal property rights? It often feels like property rights are overlooked when it comes to human rights law, but just because they are included in Protocol 1 that does not necessarily mean that they have less status compared to some of the other rights included in the main body of the Convention. On top of this, the Human Rights Act 1998 applies in the same way, and so the courts do have the power to declare provisions within legislation to be incompatible with the right to property. In fact, it could be argued that when it comes to the right to property, there is a much greater need for such declarations, given the overall tendency for heavy state interference in this area. 
Mr. Mott's case is a particularly onerous example and demonstrates how the state can operate in a vindictive and devastating way when it comes to individuals' personal property rights. When negotiations with the Environment Agency did not pan out, the government body instead deliberately set out to ruin Mr. Mott's livelihood by what might in any other context be described as criminal extortion. The protection of the environment is important and a worthy goal, but it is wrong to go about it in a way that is so forceful and overbearing. The agency's approach in this instance is actually counterintuitive, because at a higher level, both parties are really on the same side. Let me explain. Overfishing the Severn estuary for salmon is not in Mr Mott's long-term financial interest, because it will eventually mean that the salmon stock will run out. And not only will he be unable to continue his livelihood, but his leasehold interest will become worthless. Based on this common ground, there should have been some way to reach an agreement, or at the very least impose conditions on the fishery that are fair and amenable to Mr Mott, if paired with appropriate compensation. Instead, we are forced once again to stand back and witness an overweening state body exercise undue influence on the activities of a private citizen. Well, thank you very much for tuning in once again to the UK Law Weekly podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the awesome theme music. Special thanks also go out to Law Weekly listener Anon and Tom Tom the Cat, who left reviews of the podcast on iTunes, and that is always very much appreciated. Um, I'm really grateful for the feedback that you give to me, and it really inspires me to continue doing the podcast. Furthermore, it also helps other people to discover the podcast as well, so um, if you do enjoy it, do try and uh, find the time to leave a review on iTunes. If you want to catch me elsewhere, I'm on Twitter, at Marcus Cleaver, or you can visit my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver. I'll be back next week with another case, but in the meantime, bye!